Do you like movies? You do? Then I bet you're already very familiar with our friends over at Vinegar Syndrome. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. The company was started by cinephiles Joe Rubin and Ryan Emerson and was said to be, quote, perhaps the most important home video label in the world of genre film by the Alamo Draft House. Holy shit, that is one hell of an endorsement. A big part of that is because of a three-step process I lovingly refer to as the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an expansive film archive of over 500 feature films, and they also work closely with archival institutions like the Museum of Modern Art, the Academy... Yeah, MoMA! The Academy Film Archive, the Library of Congress, UCLA, and the Walker Center. I can't even count how many of their releases have either never gotten a physical release or haven't been seen since the days of VHS. Many of these films look better than they have any right to look. My favorite thing about Vinegar Syndrome is that they have their own in-house lab, which they use to restore these films to all of their glory. I can honestly say that I have never seen any drain reduction or digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome was one of our first sponsors, and I'm overjoyed to say that they've stuck with us for five years. I'm still surprised we stuck around for five years, to be completely I, honest with you. Uh, that we've stuck with each other. Yeah, I know. I really thought we'd be done after the first couple months in the first season. We're still keeping, baby! Yeah, we are. So check out their website today to pick up your copies of the Forgotten Jolly Collections 1, 2, and 3. Though one oh, might be out of print, shit. so if you see it, make sure you grab it. Satan's Blood, Fade to Black, a VHS favorite amongst a lot of cinephiles that was uh, unable to be released for a very long time. Taxi Girls, Don Coscarelli's Beastmaster, an HBO late night favorite. The 3D film Silent Madness, and the weirdo French Christmas horror film Dial Code Santa Claus, a.k.a. Deadly Game, and many, many more. Visit them today at VinegarSyndrome.com and let them know that the Shameless Picture Show sent you. That's right, VinegarSyndrome.com for all the cult, horror, exploitation, and vintage porn you could ever want. However much that may be. Yeah, exactly. I'm changing things up too. I'm not drinking my normal water or coffee. I am drinking Coke plus coffee. Nice. (laughs) Together. (laughs) Together. Well, I used to do that when I worked at an Italian restaurant. They used to give me a shot of espresso and then pour a Coke on top of it. Nice. Uh, Now Coke just packages that. Right? They they realized, um, you know, what the people wanted. Yeah. They want cocaine and coffee together. <laughs> um, I'm I'm drinking a um, independent brewery's Scotch ale called Wheezy. Scotch like like like, like, like Scottish. Oh oh, so I didn't a, know if it was like it was Scotch and beer. Mixed oh together. no no, it's uh they, I believe Scotch ales. There are two varieties, and they are legitimately called this a wee heavy. Scotch ale, we heavy, or okay. I don't know, well, we light. Is that the? I, I don't know much about alcohol. Like I, I, I used to drink, but even then, like I didn't know. Like I just, I just drank uh, rum and cokes. Pretty much, if you can mix it with coke, I'll, I'll probably drink. Nice, it's what I'm. Where for say. me, if I can mix it with rum, then I'll probably drink. It. Yeah, actually, no, actually, never mind. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was rum and coke. I think I might have said something else in coke. Whatever. Yeah, rum and coke was always my go-to, but. uh I when I was in film school, I was friends with this kid from Canada who told me that he used to drink um, 
Mountain Dew and rum together. <laughs> Whoo! That is that's a that's a redneck margarita right there. <laughs> and the last night I ever drank, I feel like that's what I was drinking was nice. we had rum, and I was never like a straight booze guy, so we always needed a mixer. Yep. And I was hanging out with friends. I was like, "Do we have anything to mix this with?" And they're like, "We have Mountain Dew." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> that Canadian cocktail. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the last night I drank. <laughs> it was not a good time for me. Oh. Um, but uh, I'll I'll burp away from the microphone. My apologies. Uh, uh, um, I've been happy to see that you've been writing again. For those of you at home, I, I think that's part of my good mood. Is at my latest update to Michael is I sent him a screenshot of the the page number that I was on because mm-hmm. I officially hit the halfway point. Of my strip length goal. So in two weeks, I think it's been two weeks, I wrote, I wrote half of my first draft, and I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling I, really good to be writing. I've not again. written as much as I wanted to, but like I'm also applying for jobs and <laughs> doing the whole laid off. Life. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, I had interviews today and had to go take care of that. And, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it was fine. <laughs> it's, but, but I'm, uh, I'm Oops, having sorry, what, having read what you're up to now, I'm very excited about your script. Well, I'm glad. Like it's it's <laughs> it feels weird to kind of like do like a page one rewrite, but I'm still keeping some scenes. Uh, and then I've been trying to get a um, a, a short film made. Me and my buddy Ryan DeWorth, we are trying to get a short film made once I have cash again, <laughs> right? Um, to put towards it, and uh, I need to do another draft of that for him. Just some changes, but since. I, the screenwriting software I used to use, I no longer have access to, uh, and I can't seem to open any of those files, so I'm, I have to uh, pretty much take my PDF and just retype oh, That's brutal. Yeah. But, you know, it's, 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 part, of the, it's part of the game, right. I guess. At least it's a short film and not a feature. That would be Exa- a lot well, typing. That's kind of where I'm at right now with the, with the feature that I am writing. You know, I, I, have bo- I have both the new one and the old one open, and I just, I'm going through it. Because some scenes are staying the same, or I'm using it as my, you know, I'm not, I'm not brave enough to co- do a complete page one rewrite. <laughs> I'm still copying some of the stuff I already had that, oh, I like this, I like yeah. this, and, yeah. you know. So that's what I'm doing. Um, yeah, and then um, Amanda's downstairs doing homework. And nice. Yeah, it's been a it's been a decent day. It's nice outside of Wisconsin. It too. is. It's nice out here too. It hit the fifties. Oh, see, uh, it's so not even that warm here. It's <laughs> here. It's only like. Um, hold on, let me pull up my weather channel. It's only like okay, it's forty six degrees here. Okay, which, yeah, you know, for those who live in the Midwest, that's that's Midwest spring right there. Right, yeah. Like no, I'm outside I've, without a hoodie on, and I'm I'm walking around in my t shirt, and everybody's looking at me like I'm crazy. Yeah, this is pretty warm. This yeah. is pretty warm. <laughs> I bought a buddy over at a uh, uh, purely Kino, Paul Dieter. He says hello, yeah. and he's actually oh, and hey. that's perfect, Paul, because we need to give him a shout out for being a new Patreon subscriber. Oh yes, I also, uh, Paul, I saw your post of you in that shirt today, and I have that exact same shirt. The Always Follow Your <laughs> Dreams uh, little cartoon Freddy shirt. I love it. <laughs> I love it too. I love it too. So but hey. Now, for for those of you that haven't already signed up for our Patreon, you should really sign up for the Patreon. It's I, I'm making I, it I don't, it's like making it a big deal out of it. Boo, 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 boo. It's it's like the party scene from the film that we're gonna discuss. Spoilers. Yep. 
Real quick, one thing I do want to talk about before we get yeah. to the movie itself. Yeah. So, we're, we're we'll t- I don't know how much we're going to talk about it, but <laughs> in this movie, this unnamed movie that we you have no idea what we're talking about <gasps> it's yet. It's such a mystery. <laughs> uh, Ratso lives in such a shithole. <laughs> yeah, he was in the condemned building. and it's, You can it's, smell it yes, through the screen. It, and it just reminds me that I'm... Uh, so... Me and Amanda, since we have Verizon for our phone line, and if real quick, if it gets if it's a little hot on my face, it's because I got a window right there and the sun's going down. So I'm just gonna yeah. be I'm gonna be glowing throughout this, <laughs> as you always do. Thank you, for, uh, just from beauty. We we have Verizon as our phone uh, carrier, and we just found out we can get six months of free Discovery Plus. Okay, uh, which I didn't think I had a whole lot of interest in until I realized that they have all like. 35 seasons of house hunters renovation <laughs> and it's like it made me think it's like man if this show would have existed back in during this movie Ratso maybe wouldn't have lived in such a shithole because like we watch that show and be like oh that's a project we could probably tackle oh that's all that cost to do oh we can take care of that <laughs> until so, you find mold in the walls <laughs> yeah you know and so we've been what this morning we've all we've watched is house hunters renovation this old house and oh, I love guys, this old and, house yeah, we've never watched it before, but it's like, oh, wait, they take the entire season to do one house? That's cool. <laughs> um, and then Diners, Drives, and Dives, because who doesn't nice. love a little Guy Fieri? <laughs> right. <laughs> Guy so, Fieri, I've, it, there's this, I think, like, rebound, because everybody was really hard on Guy Fieri. I was I think, one of them. I think now people are kind of realizing he's actually a really nice guy, and they, they're just judging him based on the frosted tips, which, I, I used fair. to judge him. I used to judge him before I watched the show, and then uh, when I was working at Best Buy, they had cable in the back room for some reason, and when I was on lunch, his show always seemed to be on, and I was like, okay, I know this, and I put it on, and I just started getting into it, and you know, found out, like, there was one episode where he started speaking, like, fluent French, because he's he's a classically trained French chef, and I was like, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> you? So now I've, I go to How did you him. go from classically trained French chef to donkey sauce? <laughs> I imagine it's. I imagine he is like the the kiss of of chefs, where he's like, man, no one cares about my music, so let's put on just crazy makeup let's and just, people pay attention to let's us. Just go with it, yeah. yeah. I I appreciate that he looks like he is having fun doing what he's doing, and has never like he seems just like a genuinely nice guy who is doing positive things with the with his platform um you know save for finding out some you know there's always that possibility that a celebrity is a weirdo or an asshole that does a good job of hiding it like so far guy fieri gets my stamp of approval <laughs> yeah he's, he seems like a legitimately cool dude so now i go to back for him as well it's like you're a good man Guy Fieri. I, if I hung out with him, I would definitely make fun of him for his frosted tips. But outside of that, <laughs> I love that you can tell when he's been he's been doing this show for a while because there's some episodes where he'll take off his sunglasses and he'll have like a perfect like sunburned <laughs> tan around his glasses line. It's like, yeah, you've been you've been on the road for a while, guy. <laughs> you okay there, buddy? <laughs> Sunblock is your friend. A lot of vitamin D. Warning: This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. 
Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. This time we got it right and we got the audio to come through. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me, Nick, because uh, there's a little button you have to push to make sure that audio is actually being transmitted to it's, the crowd. We're, we're still, this live streaming is a new thing for us. It's a learning process, as has COVID been a yeah. technological learning curve for all of us. Yeah, so we're trying. But anyways, as I said, I am Michael Vyers, and with me, as always, is a man who may not be a real cowboy, but he is one hell of a stud. Nick Richards! Yes! And yes. today is the day you're not wearing a cowboy shirt. Damn I wrote it! that with that thought okay. in mind. And I, like, um, in another movie we did recently, and it's not clicking which one, but goddamn, I wanted his entire wardrobe. I, I wanted every single one of those nice cowboy shirts with the birds on. It was a uh, coal miner's daughter that yes, you had that, of course, you had that real, of realization course. about last time. Yes, he had one hell of an outfit. He had, all of his outfits were just really just chef's kiss. And and I loved. I'm 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 interrupting your intro, and we'll get back yeah, to it. Cool. But I really enjoyed how. When somebody commented on his shirt early on in his time in New York, he was saying, like, yeah, it's like he cared about his presentation. I don't he wear was, nothing cheap or something he, like yeah, that. Yeah, he wore that shirt with pride. This was part, like, he put a lot of thought into it. And this is part of what made him a really great stud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Pretty continue. Much. But on today's episode of the Shameless Picture Show, Nick and I wanted to make take a suggestion from one of our shame listeners. Today's pick comes from uh, our projection booth tier on Patreon. Being a projection booth member means you get the opportunity to project what you'd like us to watch. <gasps> I see there was, what you did there. There's <laughs> a reason behind that name, Nick. Uh, so big thanks today to Robert Flounder Ward, who has chosen for Nick and I to watch Midnight Cowboy. Joe Buck is a naive country boy with dreams of leaving Texas for New York City to make a name for himself being a hustler for rich and lonely women. What we quickly learn about Joe Buck is that not only is he not a cowboy, but he's not a gigolo either, as he's quite bad at it. Every instance with a client ends with him either getting ripped off, struggling to find his footing, or struggling to find his footing making a living. Down and out, Joe, Buck's, Joe, Joe Buck means... <laughs> Take two. Down and out, Joe Buck meets Enrico Salvatore Rizzo, a.k.a. Ratzel, a sickly con man who will do anything to make a buck. He also cons poor, naive Joe Buck, but as time goes on, they squash their differences, and Rizzo takes pity on the cowboy and offers to let Joe Buck live with him. This, at its core, is the story of Midnight Cowboy, two unlikely people who care about each other and do whatever they can to make sure they can survive together. Whether that's cooking meals, stealing shoe polish, or planning to leave the city of Florida, a place that Rizzo speaks about with an almost fairy tale excitement. Midnight Cowboy is a prolific movie and is the first and last X-rated film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. While the X rating is no longer used, it was originally created for films that censors felt had no artistic merit and is most commonly associated with pornographic films. While Midnight Cowboy is definitely tamed by today's standards, its overt depiction of sexual proclivity uh, and a peek behind the curtain of the lives of prostitutes and surreal visuals were enough to push critics away. Both Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert thought the film was less than, and while they praised the performances, did not feel the film had much to offer. However, the film was a box office success and was one of the highest grossing films in 1969. 
While John Voight and Dustin Hoffman were nominated for Best Acting, neither of them won. But the film did go on to win Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Not bad for a dirty movie. <laughs> so, Midnight Cowboy stars Dustin Hoffman and John Voight as the wonderful duo Ratso Rizzo and Joe Buck, respectively. The film features scoring by John Barry, best known for his work in James Bond, and a killer original theme by Harry Nielsen, which you will hear multiple times. <laughs> it's Cinema... In the same way that uh, Meet Me in St. Louis really got their money's worth out of of that song. They were like, if we're going to pay for it, we're going to fucking use every inch of this song. Oh, 100%. Cinematography by Adam Hollander with wonderful editing by Hugh A. Robertson and Waldo Scott. Sorry, Waldo Salt adapted the screenplay from a book by James Leo Hurley. Directed by John Schlesinger from 1969. This is Midnight Cowboy. I'm Joe Buck from Texas. And Rico Rizzo from the Bronx. And I'm going to buy you a drink. What the hell do you think of that? Well, I don't mind if I do. Why do you think I come all the way up here from Texas for? Well, I'm a hustler. You didn't know that? You were going to ask me for money? Huh? Well, you get out of here! <laughs> you got to get yourself some kind of management. Only vehicle. Hey, what the man? I'm walking here! I'm walking here! Don't worry about that. Actually, that ain't a bad way to pick up insurance, you know. New York, no rich lady with any class at all buys that cowboy crap anymore. Women like me, goddammit. Tell the only one thing I've ever been good for is loving. But for that service, I charge 20 bucks. I happen to be his manager. Okay. I'll buy his coffee, huh, baby? <coughs> I don't think I can walk anymore. You know what they do to you when, when they know you can't. When they find out that you can't walk. Walk. I'll just tell him. I don't go nowhere without my buddy here. You know what you gotta do, cowboy? I'm scared. Where are you going? I gotta get a doctor. No doctors, no cops. You're sick, boy. You need a damn doctor. Hey, put me on a bus. I don't need you. As indeed the saddest Yeehaw movie of all time. <laughs> well, not of all time, but you know, one that comes to mind at least at this moment. Yeah. Okay, so Midnight Cowboy, a movie that is on both of our shame lists. Yeah. And and one that we both identified back at the beginning when we first put together our like, all right, here's what we're gonna kinda kick off this podcast with. We knew we wanted to do, well, we both knew we needed to do Midnight Cowboy. And yep. right enough, I knew very little about the film. I just knew it was a film people talked about. The, I think this is one of those films where everyone knows it and nobody, and, and I say nobody as an exaggeration, but so few people from our generation have actually seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, that it well, kind of makes it perfect for this show. I, I feel like, honestly, we're kind of getting to a point where, okay, we are considered what, like, core to later generation millennials, like, I think technically. I I Um, fall into the exennial category where I'm, like, right on the cusp. We're kind of getting to a point, unless it's, like, and it's not to take anything away from Midnight Cowboy because it's a fucking Academy Award winning film. It's not like one of the big classics. It's not a Godfather. It's not a uh, 
Jaws or what have you, where I feel like we're kind of getting to a point where fewer and fewer of these older movies are being seen. Like, yeah. um, and and yet they still have permeated our culture even to this mm-hmm. day. We all know the "Hey, I'm walking here." We we all know we all know the shot of. Of whether or not we recognize it as John Voight, we know the person walking towards the camera as everyone else in this big crowded street mm-hmm. scene moves in the other direction. Like we know, we all know Rizzo the Rat from the Muppets. Yeah, but yeah, had no definitely. idea that it was inspired by this character. One hundred percent. Like I didn't know that um, when when we were introduced to him in that lady was calling him Ratso, Rizzo the Rat. I was like, <laughs> yes. holy shit! And, and they have that same, like, Rizzo has that same accent. So I'm, like, as I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking of a Muppet Christmas Carol as, as I'm like, does that make John Voight's character the Gonzo? <laughs> it could. And actually, like, it's funny. I, I never even put that together that <laughs> until you mentioned that just now. <laughs> like, that... I, I don't suspect so, but... In the same way that Ernie and Bert were inspired by the characters from It's a Wonderful Life, like I would I would love it if they did use John Voight's character to partly inspire Gonzo. That would be I I, I doubt it, but it would be amazing. It would that would be amazing. <laughs> I'd be very okay with that. Um but no, it's 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 funny. So like um lately there has been um I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. Uh, very recently, um, uh, well, I cannot think right now. Um, <laughs> Martin Scorsese wrote an article very recently um, about. Let's see if I can find the exact titling for it. He wrote a, an article about streaming culture. Oh, okay. you know what else do you expect uh, Martin Scorsese to <laughs> say about um, where he talks about well he, he he didn't write specifically about that but he he talks about in there how films are becoming less and less a they it's becoming content you know um it's become you know the the respect for film is going away and it's becoming more and more content and he wrote he wrote an essay about that recently and he was talking about that and and then a lot of people kind of jumped on him and because he was saying that you know older films should be respected and revered. Um, and as Paul says, it's a uh, Simpsons quote, old man yells at clouds. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, he's like how old cinema should be revered and it should be – and. I, I, I both agree and disagree with him. I, I agree that more because honestly, people are taking the wrong part of this because wow, it, the, the sun's really bright. <laughs> I can um, tell you're distracted. <laughs> sorry, because um, people on on film Twitter have been, have been jumping now on on the bandwagon because Martin Scorsese made a lot of enemies very recently by talking <laughs> about how he doesn't consider the Marvel films to be cinema, which I think is uh, pretentious hooey. Um, <laughs> But he's he he's talking about how older films should be respected, and not enough young people are watching older films. And of course, a lot of people on Twitter were like, you know, I I I have a strict I don't watch anything before 1979 rule, and how old movies are born, and all this other stuff. And I just think it's 
I see both sides of the coin. Like, I don't think Martin Scorsese is correct by saying that streaming is hurting cinema. I honestly think, like, you know, he 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 makes it sound like because so much stuff is coming out that everything that's coming out is bad. And we, we forget how many hundreds, if not thousands of movies came out before the days of streaming that fucking sucked. Yeah. yeah. Not just because it's and, an old movie doesn't mean it automatically is good. Right. And just because it's a new movie that's coming out in streaming doesn't mean it's automatically bad. But there is definitely... A aversion to older films where people aren't seeking them out or they're just not being played because most people have Netflix, but how many older films are on Netflix? How many times are you going to pop on Netflix and see a movie like Taxi Driver or Midnight Cowboy that makes like their bullshit top five of the week? Like, oh, these are the five movies that you should be seeing this week. So I, it's, it's interesting. The, the, the other side of that is... Let, let's say streaming never happened. How many people our age would go buy physical media of a taxi driver or uh, meet me in St. Louis? Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't... If anything, that has given people easier access to this content than ever before. Now, mm-hmm. excuse me, that's not to say that people are seeking it out. They may or may not be. I tend to believe that they are more than they aren't. But I don't think streaming is the cause of that. No, when, no. When, whenever any advances in really anything, but to keep it into the to the context of the film world, whenever a new technology or a, a new thing disrupts the scene, like there are going to be people that are like, uh-oh, this is going to destroy film. Yeah, and like, there are going to people that are going to look at it and go, oh my God, because of this, look at what we're going to be able to do. And I think the older you are when that happens, the more time you spent with it the way that it was, the more likely you are to be like, now it's not going to be like it was. And the younger you are, the more likely you are to see, look what it will become. You have more future yeah. to look forward to. It's like, it, it almost reminds me of like, I, I'm sure there's people when when video came out, like like VHS that were like, oh, this is the end of everything, yeah. you know. And it's just, it's the same as like, um, you know, the old guard of filmmakers who were like, well, now everyone can go make a movie. It's like, well, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to make a good movie. Right. And just because you have the studio backing you doesn't mean you're also going to make a good movie. Like, I feel like I'm kind of going on a rant here. I feel <laughs> like there's this there's old guard versus new guard thing that's going on where I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't think streaming is killing film. I think, if anything, it's giving people opportunities and giving people a chance for their shit to be seen. Because, honestly, I feel like more people have gotten their movies seen than if they were just trying to do theatrical. Right. But um, I do think, um, you know, there's there's people who are like, oh, all new movies suck. I only watch old movies. Well, then you're, you're really saying that only old movies are good. When I have seen some really fucking terrible old movies. Right. You know? And just, like, I've seen really fucking terrible new movies. I've seen good new movies. I've seen good old movies. It's like, I just there's, feel like... There's always I, going to be valuable content coming out. Yeah. And there's I mean, always and, and whether that's film or books or music or whatever, there's always going to be good stuff coming out. There's always going to be good stuff coming out that you don't like or connect to. There's always going to be stuff that you really love that other people don't connect to. And... What media it comes out on, what how it's distributed, like, yes, it will have an impact on the final product. 
-hmm. it does not prevent good stuff from coming out, nor does it prevent bad stuff from not coming out. Yeah. Like, like that's just always going to be how it is. Like, people like... <laughs> and and I'm not going to say this was his intention or anything, but, like, people like Scorsese will often talk about, like, the lost magic of cinema i just think it's 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 nostalgia glasses in a lot of ways you look back mm -hmm. into the way it made you feel at one point and because you don't feel that anymore you think it's going away i think i just recently cut together a bonus episode of the show where i i talk about a movie called hollywood story and in it it's a it's a gumshoe noir film set in hollywood and this guy owns yeah, a old, see? yeah. He 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 owns this old Hollywood studio, like this production studio that used to be made for silent films. In reality, it was actually Charlie Chaplin's studio, and you know, so this was made in like the forties or the fifties, and you know, there, there's this old guard, this old security guard is walking him through the studio and being like. Yeah, you know, the, the earliest and the best films were made here. And, you know, it's like, oh, so here's this dude who likes movies, but he's very much like, ah, once talking came around, it ruined movies. They'll just right. never be like they used to be. Everyone's got their shit, you know? Like, yep. like my mom, she loves the old school musicals and the old westerns and things like that and doesn't see as many new movies. She likes some of the ones that she sees, but is always very like, oh, I don't know what any of these movies are. Like, you're always going to... The day that you actively stop seeking things out or just tell yourself that everything that comes out is bad or everything's a superhero movie and all this, it shows that you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. And I'll admit, sometimes you need a reason. You need a reason to see these films. And I don't know. I'm sure I would have eventually seen Midnight Cowboy, but the reason I saw it is because I gave myself a reason. I, I, I did this show. Yeah. And I, I feel like... People need to find their their motivating factor. Like I use Letterboxd a lot. I'll use Letterboxd to find new movies that I've not heard of that I feel like I should see. I use to find old movies. I I I feel like the day that you just tell yourself well, I've seen everything worth seeing, <laughs> you just maybe you shouldn't watch another movie then because that's that the day you stop growing is the day that you stop growing. Yeah, I and I I'd, I'd put a little more nuance on that and that. You know, if somebody comes up to me and they're like, I only watch movies from 1980 to 1987, I'd be like, great, cool, that's your jam? Like, yeah, awesome, good for you. But so long as you don't then, in the same breath, go, because that's only when good movies were made. You know, yeah, it's... it's it's fine for for like like you brought up your mom. It's if she loves old musicals and never wants to see another movie that isn't one of her beloved old musicals. And that's fine. Musicals, more power to her. That's awesome. I hope she loves all of those and 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 embraces them and watches them over and over again and makes her happy. If she then went because nothing good is being created, it's like. Well, yeah, no, there, that's, there's that's a there's problem. an insidiousness behind that. Like it's the same thing with I follow uh, I follow Simpsons pages, and there's a lot of people who are like everything that came after season twelve is bullshit. It's garbage, <laughs> you know. And then it, it's fine if you think that, but here's the thing. But you're wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, and then not only that, but it's like okay, one person's like, well, you know, everything after season twelve is not very good, and then people start seeing that, and just, instead of making their own informed opinion, they just start agreeing with that, and then you'll see people be like, oh, it's true, everything after season twelve was bullshit. I, I watched two episodes in season thirteen, and I couldn't even get through an episode. They're so bad. I'm like, yeah. but would you have thought that 
had you not read that opinion right. because how would you know what the marker is? How would you just be like, oh, it's it's like a switch. It, you switch it's, – it's just a switch and it's automatically bad. No, you just – you think that because everyone else says it. Yeah. And I don't even know what point I'm making anymore. But it's <laughs> – it's, it's really comes down to that I'm glad I saw this film and I'm glad that I'm still seeking stuff out that challenge – that challenge me. Yeah. I, I call this the, the SNL cast conundrum, where growing up, I heard over and over again, depending on how old the person was, oh, the SNL cast that had X, Y, Adam, Adam Sandler and Chris Farley was the best, and everybody, and, and the new people they got suck, and I never got into the old stuff, and de- all it was was a litmus test for when you first fell in love with SNL. Mm-hmm. because they got attached to a certain comedy style and SNL mm-hmm. is constantly evolving. And it it's, if whoever, if when you started watching it is the best cast, then there isn't a, one cast that's better than another. It's the nostalgia factor. It's mm-hmm. you fell in love with one thing. It evolved into something else and you didn't want to evolve with it. You Which again is fine. If you wanted more of the Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, you know, cast or the, the Chris Kattan, Will Ferrell cast or, you know, whatever, um, it's not that another one isn't as good. It's mm-hmm. that that is what you fell in love with and you wanted more of it. Yeah, and it's it almost becomes like for I, I've noticed with criticism and this goes with anything online, it's very much like well this was done first so it's automatically better and anything yeah. else that even remotely resembles it is is bad like there's a new movie that just came out called the little things it's on hbo max currently and it has uh, denzel washington uh, rami malik and jared leto and it's it was actually written in the 90s and it, it's it, it's it, it feels like a 90s police crime thriller okay and i actually enjoyed it quite a bit and i saw a lot of people online were being like Seven did it better, or this is just a seven ripoff. And it honestly, it did, other than the fact that it's about detectives trying to catch a serial killer, it didn't remind me much of Seven, to be honest yeah. with you. But you have those people like this movie did it first, so this one's not even worth making. It's right. like, well, then you know, using that logic, then the first person to do non-linear editing is the best editor on the planet, <laughs> and we should only be watching Birth of a Nation. But that's problematic <laughs> as fuck. As soon as you start comparing it directly to something else. In a negative looking, fashion. It, you start looking at what that isn't instead of mm-hmm. what it is. Like the first time you fall in love with an SNL cast, you're, you're discovering what it is. Mm-hmm. And then when you move on to the next cast, you're saying what it isn't. And that, yeah. not as a bad thing, but you're saying, oh, I like this and this doesn't have that. And same with this. Please, like, yeah. I love Seven. This kind of reminds me of Seven, so now I'm looking at what I liked in Seven that isn't in this, and that's why I don't like it. And that's yeah. not you got it. You need to embrace it as its own thing and stop comparing it to. It. We're we're all. It's how the human brain works. We're always looking for connections. We're always looking mm-hmm. for things to compare it to. But it's unfair to judge that. It, it's like its value based on comparing it to something else. Yeah, like and to get like using Letterboxd for example, everyone has their own rating system. Everyone knows yep. what they how they do it. I do a sliding rating system, meaning ev- I judge every film on its own system, on its own merits. 
I know other people who pretty much here's the best film I've ever seen. And then they compare everything else to that. Like, if Citizen Kane is a five-star film, well, I loved this film. But is it as good as Citizen Kane? No? Well, okay, well, then it goes here. It's, for me, like, I I gave both Midnight Cowboy and that movie The Little Things four stars. Am I saying that one is better than the other? They're on the same level? No, but I thought they are both great. And so I stuck with that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Cool. Well, that I, I kinda, was a... <laughs> That, that was, was a, a dense rant of that had very little to do with Midnight Cowboy. I kept trying to bring it back, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever. I, so, I was fighting you. I was like, no, let's not talk about Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> you just don't want to talk about Midnight Cowboy. It's okay. So we should do our first, our our thoughts on this. Do, do you want me to, to go first or should you? Um, you want to go I, I feel like I'm starting to build momentum, so I'll, I'll go with it. Um I did not know what to expect from Midnight Cowboy. I thought I had remembered that it was about a male sex worker. I thought I had remembered hearing that it's kind of like a person goes to New York City to try and make it and then doesn't. But that was about it. Um, And I'm going to, I'll put in the disclaimer that I'm going to discuss this film outside of the fact that John Voight appears to be a really terrible person and and i'm trying not to like, oh i don't know anything about his personal life let, let that uh impact my opinion of the film well apparently um, dustin hoffman's also not a very nice guy either oh so. really yeah. okay um the the performances were fucking phenomenal particularly dustin hoffman he blew actually, me I was going to say, water. I was going to say particularly John Voight, mostly okay. because I'm used to slightly older, middle-aged John Voight, where he doesn't do much of anything. <laughs> he just, it's like you know, I'm thinking of Mission just, Impossible, John Voight, or National <laughs> Treasure, John Voight, where he just kind of stands there and just like, I'm grumpy. <laughs> like I, he's so youthful and fun and young in this movie. Right. Like I'm Joe Book. <laughs> um. <laughs> lost my train of thought. Now I can. I just have good, on repeat good, in my good. head. You going? I'm Joe Buck. Ah, Joe. Joe Buck. Joe Buck. Where's Joe Buck? Um, it it is very apparent to me, um, that this is a film based on a novel. In the same, yeah. it has like the yeah, same. It has the same pacing as say Rebecca or um. Gone with the wind, or where it doesn't, it doesn't have the same pacing as something that's written for film. That's more of a traditional, like three act structure kind of layout. I can always feel, especially those like mid century, like nineteen forties to nineteen sixties novels, mm-hmm. um, when they're adapted and adapted well. They have the same pacing that Midnight Cowboy has. That um, I like, for for instance, uh, spoiler alert: um, Rizzo dies at the end. What? I, 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 I know, I know, blows you away. I gave the spoiler alert, which typically I'm like, just suck it up and deal with the spoilers. Um, I think if this were written for film, he would have died earlier in the film, mm-hmm. and you would have seen the the fallout from that, but it's very novel tone and novel pacing to have the, the death be at the very end, like the last frames of the film. Yeah. Don't worry. It's just sickness. We'll be in Miami in a couple <laughs> minutes. 
<laughs> oh, and the way that John Voight like puts his arm around him to try and like, yep, he's okay. Oh, um, so sad. I found it interesting how dumb he was. <laughs> it's not often that you see a character so dumb, and it took me a while to realize it. At first, it felt more like naive. But by yeah. the end of the film, I'm like, no, this guy is just not smart. He probably yeah. has an like an actual measurable low IQ. Um, yeah. Where Rizzo felt a, a little bit smarter, um, but st- like still that same kind of lonely, isolated, outside of... He, he was outside of society for different reasons. Yeah. Um, I loved... Little bits like the name thing. Like, no, call me Rico, call me Rico. I'm not a rat. At least in, in my, my own, own home, home. I am, yeah, in my own home, you're going to call me Rico. And then one of the most heartbreaking things for me about the moment where where Rico dies is mm-hmm. that it, it you see the two of them sitting there. And then Joe starts to talk and it kind of either pans over or cuts to a close-up. And right in the beginning of that speech, he goes, um, Ratso, I'm sorry, I mean Rico, and then continues on. Where mm-hmm. I'm, And then by the end of his speech, he's dead. One of the last things that he heard was this friend of his, the person who probably cares about him the most out of everyone in the world, disrespect him in the one way that seems to matter to him. And it's just mm-hmm. so heartbreaking to know that he died like hearing that word "ratso" from his friend, who who genuinely cares, did everything, gave up, like I mean, what was there to give up? But but did everything he could to fulfill this man's dying wish, and then still could not call him Rico, not yeah. without first slipping and calling him "ratso." Stuff like that is 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 what made this film so beautiful for me. Shirts are comfortable, ain't they? Yours the only one left with a palm tree on it. Clothes are damn cheap here, too, you know that? <coughs> Everything we got only set us back ten, son. Hey, you know, Ratzel. Rico, I mean, I got this damn thing all figured out. When we get to Miami, what I'm going to do is get some sort of job, you know? Because hell, I ain't no kind of hustler. I mean, there must be an easier way of making a living than that. Some sort of outdoors work? What do you think? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Okay, Rico. Rico. 
Rico? Oh, and I just forgot about like the line that comes after all that, or during that, where he's during this this ending sequence and everything. He's talking about like, you know, I was a bad hustler, so I'm gonna go get myself a job down there. And it's like, oh, you went from wanting to get away from doing boring remedial labor to being a hustler, yeah. and now he's like, well, that life sucks. Let me go back to doing <laughs> some honest work. Right. I also really liked how for for Joe Buck. New York was this place where he could succeed. It was this idealized place. Um, and then we meet Rizzo, who Miami was that that idealized place where all of his problems wouldn't exist anymore. And so mm-hmm. you got that kind of comparison um, throughout the film. And for as as horribly as New York went for Joe Buck we should you know it it kind of sets up that we know that Miami is not going to be this happy solution that he th- that Rizzo thinks it is and it he was able to fulfill that dream of his just barely yeah. um but it's still like it it really isn't what he built it up in his mind to be all these no and it's really time. sad that he never really got a chance to find out but he got to die happy that knowing that he got there yeah and he, he didn't he have to have his, he, he didn't have to have Florida. his soul crushed knowing yeah. that it wasn't going to be what he wanted it to be yeah. so um, michael what did you think of midnight cowboy <laughs> i really liked midnight cowboy i've been flip-flopping on my review but i eventually settled on four stars it was but um i liked midnight cowboy quite a bit um and mainly because it played into a lot of the sensibilities in terms of what i like out of filmmaking now, I did have some qualms with it and some pacing things, and I actually kind of, reading the description of of um, James Hurley's book, I kind of wish they would have spent a little bit more time in Texas and kind of get to know what Joe Buck's life was like, but I feel like John Schlesinger decided that that wasn't the story that he wanted to tell. Um I liked the film quite a bit. I liked its more surrealistic aspects. I like how it treated sex and how it wasn't as overt and explicit as we'd probably even see now. Uh, but it was it was creative. Like the first time, the first per- woman he slept with, like just the way that they his little <laughs> montage of everything that's going on, I thought was really clever. The performances were great. Here, there's these two characters that are polar opposites at the beginning, kind of don't like each other at all, uh, but then create a real kinship with each other. And um, I, I honestly feel like the film is about male friendship and male bonding. And, uh, and, and I would say male love. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in, a, in a way that Joe Buck's very uncomfortable with. Like, he, he – I, I feel like there is, there's definitely – some would even say it's probably not even subtext with how overt it is at times. Yeah. Uh, his dealing with his own sexuality. Right. Um, like I, it feels like he doesn't want that label of gay. He doesn't uh want to, to be gay. He sees himself as a stud on, on for women. And then he only, uh, hits these, uh, gay for pay. Right. Um, but then he has, but his his best relationship is with this other man, 
mm-hmm. and that he's totally comfortable with. Well, he, it, he eases into it, but it's more about distrust of people. Not mm-hmm. he's not hesitant to be to care about this other man. Yeah. Um, so that that was an interesting. And and there's one th- other thing. Um, I read an uh, an essay by Mark Harris that I think speaks to something that you were just saying about cutting off the first third of the of the novel, The More Time in um, Texas. And he says in the essay, like all great adapters, Salt knew when to be faithful and when to be ruthless. He jettisoned most of the first third of Herlihy's novel, intuiting that Midnight Cowboy's story truly begins when Joe Buck arrives in New York. Yeah. Um, and then a little bit down further. Um, oh no, that that that's just a repeat yeah. where he says and like most for, of all, for, Salt understood that Joe's friendship with Radso had to be the story's center. Yeah, and we got we didn't get every little detail, but we got glimpses of his past. And honestly, yep. like there is times I was watching this movie, I wish the the flashbacks would have been a little bit more clear. But then I, as I watched it, I was like, I also kind of don't care. I, I get I, enough. I, yes. Yeah. I get enough, and like honestly, so this film won Best Picture in 1969. In 1970 was really the big transitional period in Hollywood, um, where there was where auteur filmmaking really started making its way to the mainstream, and filmmakers were allowed to make these more personal style movies with with actual budgets. And this film, and I'm sure there's other examples of it as well, but this film kind of feels like it helped kick that off. Where a film like this shouldn't have won an Oscar in 1969. <laughs> like, if a movie like this existed now, yeah, you can see like you can see why a film like this nowadays would would do well. Um, it, it it felt really before its time. I like the way it told the story. I like that it gave us enough, but it gave me there was still enough vague about it that I could really dig my teeth into and try to pull out more of it. And it feels like, like I said, transitional film. Like uh, I feel like I, I see a lot of movies that, without realizing it, probably owe a debt to a movie like Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, you know, it's it's a movie that should not have been. That should have not have won an Academy Award, not because it doesn't deserve it, just because it's not the type. It's it's uh it's not a safe choice. When sometimes with the Academy Awards, the films that win are safe choices. This right. is not a safe film. Yeah, and in in a time when things were being disrupted, so it it mm-hmm. makes sense in that context, but that doesn't make it any less groundbreaking or daring. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Because like the year it came out. True Grit was also out. Like you think in 1969, like True Grit, like that you know big John Wayne Western and everything. <laughs> like you do not you you watch True Grit, and if you were to watch a Midnight Cowboy, you would not assume those movies came out in the same year. Right. I mean to kill you in one minute, Ned, or see you hanged in Fort Smith at Judge Parker's convenience. Which will it be? I call that bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch! Because one felt, while a good movie, felt kind of old, and this one felt very youthful. Well, and and it's particularly interesting with John uh, Joe Buck's um, 
kind of inspiration, his his own built into the narrative, his inspiration of wanting to be this Texan cowboy exterior. It 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 refer, it directly references that old way of being and how he he's actually something quite different under that exterior. Yeah, and I also think this film was about finding who you are and being the person you want to be. Because I was me, me and Amanda were talking about this yesterday, like about Joe Buck's uh, outfits and everything. I, I we don't me and Amanda don't think he was this person back in Texas. Yeah. You know he he especially because a couple times you see him in flashbacks when he's not naked, he's just wearing yeah. a basic t-shirt and jeans. When he first comes in his in this outfit to work, they're like, "What the hell are you wearing?" Like yep. it's not even like, "Why aren't you dressed in your work clothes?" Like, "What are you wearing?" You're yeah. we've never seen you wear this before. Um, well, and you get these great little bits with his grandma's boyfriend and how he was a cowboy, so it feels like he has this idea. Of what uh, a, a real man, is. What, what like, a, yeah. yeah, a man who's loved by women, and so he's like, okay, not only am I gonna go to New York, but here's how I'm gonna go, and here's who I'm gonna become. Yeah, and it's like you know I, that that line just really sticks out in my brain. That you know, are you a real cowboy? No, I'm not. Like he's <laughs> not lying. And he's not being like, oh, I'm not like a movie cowboy or whatever. He's just that's not him. He's a boy right. from Texas. Yeah. But you know, like it, it, it's it's a created persona. It's not like a fish out of water story where like this is what I'm like back in my town. I don't fit in out here. It's like no, I I he created this persona for him because he wants to feel comfortable with who he is. Because he was built you know, for loving. Yeah, and he's he probably thinks like you know me just walking around with a white shirt and jeans. No one's gonna. I ain't gonna pick up anyone that way. I gotta. It's going back to what we were saying at the beginning of the episode, where Guy Fieri. Sometimes you gotta create a persona to yep. catch attention. Yep. Well, and I, I really look at think that's that back around. Fuck well, yeah. And and that's supported by when he when he goes to the to the pimp. I guess you'd call him that Rizzo sends him to that first time, and he's like, oh. You with this get up, this this thing you have going on, we're gonna make us some money. I, mm-hmm. I'm gonna work you ragged. It, it it was the persona that interested him, and that he was going to sell. It wasn't anything about Joe Buck. It wasn't about he he hadn't seen his dick yet to know that that was valuable no. or or his you know how satisfied he'd made these women or men. Um, it it was about this. It's it's a good job at, that he had created. It's a good job interview. It's when you go yeah. into a job interview yeah. and you do not have a resume that can support the job you're applying for. <laughs> you go in with confidence and comfort. And you wow them. You go you in wow them with with that that blue cowboy shirt with the birds on it and that big old ten gallon hat and your leather mm-hmm. fringe shirt and you're like, I want this job. God damn it. <laughs> You know what I want? I want to rewatch the movie Boogie Nights because thinking about, it, I feel I I feel like Boogie Nights probably has a debt to owe to this movie. I have not seen it. Well, we might need to change. We should that. do the episode. Yeah, <laughs> we should do a Boogie Nights episode. All right, because um, there, I think there's some commonality commonalities amongst them. Um, I think, from my memory, Boogie Nights is a better told story. Okay. Um, cause I, I did have some narrative issues and pacing issues in this film, like, like, or the things that I wanted more of some things and less of other things. Like, I don't think we really needed that weird Andy Warhol-esque party because <laughs> let's be real. 
I don't think Joe Buck would have been invited to that party anyways, to be completely but frank. But he was. He was, but... He was. I'm with Rizzo. Like, how, why Why would they want you? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Rizzo. Like, why Joe Buck? <laughs> but it is an opportunity to explore what those two characters think of themselves versus what they think the world thinks of them. Yeah, that's true. I did, it gave them that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Plus, then he got to meet that really fucking sweet girl that hired him for the night. She was so nice. <laughs> she was. And then, like, they played scribbage together. Right. And... and she was like, oh, honey, are you maybe not into girls? That'd be okay. I know. And then they're, <laughs> when they're playing scribbage together, I think, like, Joe Buck is kind of, like, revealing <laughs> stuff about himself by which words he brings up. And... and and he was, it was another showcase of how kind of dumb he was. He was like, hold on, I'm, I'm gonna get this. What kind of word starts with Y? There ain't no words. And she's like, well, it doesn't have to start. It could end. With it could y. end like, could. you know, pay, say. I think she even says gay, doesn't she? She does. And and yeah. that's kind of her segue into, is is that maybe why you were having trouble? Is that is that mm-hmm. what you are? Yeah, because um, like the two words he has put down were man and misspelt money. Yeah, Money. Because, because of that. Because the sign. Yes. It, it just, again, shows how simple this guy really is um i thought that was a beautiful scene mm-hmm. just a it's one of my favorites of the movie constructed scene it was one of my favorite scenes of the movie i also really liked the scene earlier in the film where when rizzo was like you know what i'm gonna help this guy and uh you know he gets him like he cuts his ha- he's cutting his hair and you know gets his hat clean and they steal it you know <laughs> before they pay and i love the shoe shining scene cuz people just keep fucking sitting down he's like oh god uh, all right <laughs> i like to think that they made like a good amount of money that that day just shining everybody else's shoes i know um you know that's ultimately i think the reason why i i feel like i'd be while the movie is kind of a downer ending, it's it's a weirdly fun movie. Like it's it's kind of enjoyable to watch because of the characters and the weird little hijinks they get themselves into. It's not a downer from scene one to till the end. It kind of builds to that point. But yeah. their relationship with each other, I think, is why I'd be keen to revisit this film. Yeah, no, it is. I that is the heart of the film. You look at how terrible everything is around them and how much failure they experience. But the the, uh, I think it's hard to recognize that joyful, positive thing because those two characters never really realize it. They never mm-hmm. go through that moment of, oh my God, look at what a good friend I have. Or look at how much I care about this person. Or how much that person cares about me. Neither of them ever realize it. Yeah. And so it's hard for the audience to pick up on it, but that is the heart of the movie. It's it, the the two of them coming together to do to to try and make both of their dreams come true, as silly as those dreams may be. Yeah, you know, because like I, I feel like you know Rizzo at the beginning, he's just looking to get twenty bucks out of Joe Buck. Like it's that's it. <laughs> uh, but you know, one I think he. I, I feel like when he invited him to come with him, it was it was slightly less out of feeling bad for this guy, more so like I need to smooth things over with this guy. Yeah. But I think, well, you know, I feel like at the beginning Rizzo realized how dumb Joe Buck was, and he could probably take advantage of him. Right. But as time yeah. went, like they really created a bond. Like it's, I don't think they're even aware of how much they care about each other yeah. throughout it, this film. 
Even until by, Rizzo's gone. By the end of that scene, and and we don't see Joe Buck after he's gone, except for that brief, you know, minute. Um, but even at the end of that scene where where Rito invites him to his home, by the end of that, he's saying, "You don't have to go. Why don't Why don't you stick around? Why don't mm-hmm. Why don't you stay here?" Um, you could see Rico's desperation for companionship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's so heartbreaking, but there's this positive thing that holds it all together. Yeah, and that's why I think that's why I I I truly think I truly like this film, like. Uh, because uh, Fonda originally wanted us to watch it because he said that he's just really enamored by this movie. He saw it yeah. because it was on HBO Max, I think. Uh, or maybe he saw it at the Alamo Draft House. I don't remember. And he said he's just been really enamored with this film. And there are occasionally movies I'll see like, like this where like I can't necessarily tell you what it is. There's just some weird movie magic behind yes. it where even when it's a little rougher on the edges or you know maybe not the best of movies, there's something to it. You know, like I've seen better movies than this that I'll probably, you know, don't really, I don't know when I'd want to rewatch, but like this is like, you know what? I, I feel like I would, I feel like I'd want to, you know, like I think the Godfather was a better film, but I'm less likely to rewatch that. I, than I, I would this. agree with that. You know, um, the Godfather was a significantly better film. I also, there's. When when I was watching this movie from my modern, con, you know, from from my modern lens, I was very uncomfortable with like the constant use of the f word. Me, yes. not not fuck the actual f word that's actually offensive. Um, yeah. yeah, and and how critical they were of that. And I had to go through this process over the last twenty four hours of that. I I started thinking about like story ownership right Mm -hmm. so i i looked up and discovered that both the director and the author of the novel were both gay men so that i did not know yep so there's i have to assume that there is a lot of truth from you know not 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 narratively factual but um just a lot of their personal truth both written into the story and then put on the screen by the director mm-hmm. that then, so I started thinking about how it's not so much about what's on screen as much as who's telling that particular story. Right. So if, if a straight person writes a story that involves a gay storyline, a, a gay viewer is, much more empowered or allowed to criticize that element because as a straight person telling a gay story, it's not that straight person's story to tell Mm a, a, a gay person telling a gay story can't, it's, it's not really okay for a straight person to criticize the, the truth or non-truth or, or, problematic or not problematic to to criticize that element of the story it's not their story to criticize Mm -hmm. you can watch it you can form your own opinion about it but as a you know if you consider us like professional critics 
it's it's like it, the kind of what I always go back to in life is that it's not my job to comment on that element of it. It's my job to listen to it and try and understand the truths that are in that. And one scene that I found particularly impactful for me for that was his last trick, if you will, before they went to Florida. It was the oh, older, the, the, older British Oh, that man. guy. I, I got that confused with the the... The movie theater scene. Okay, yeah, no, that was more of the like the first. Yeah, like, yeah. Pay, pay for, successful. Uh, well, success. Yeah, so, so he didn't get his money, proving that he's a bad stud. <laughs> yeah, or bad businessman. Bad um, hustler. No, the the end where he actually gets the money from him, and we don't know how far he went in terms of like punching him, or did he actually kill him? We don't know. Yeah, but that older man's. That older gay man's reaction to it. And it broke my heart when mm-hmm. he, having been punched in the face, trying to... He, he gave him $10. He was trying yep. to not lose more money. Punched in the face. Knocked his teeth out. And he says, I deserve this. Yeah, that was heartbreaking. Broke my heart. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think there was a lot of a lot of truth in that scene in as to i i can't imagine how hard it, it it's hard enough to deal with society's judgment of your sexual preference today mm-hmm. i can't imagine what that was like back then yeah and like actually um uh when we were watching it one of the people that uh watching it with us is uh, our house guest emma and she was actually curious because at the time there was a period of time where it, you could get a public indecency uh yep. ticket for being gay in public and she was curious if that was if this was possibly during that time period she didn't know sure, but like sure. you know it was definitely a lot of shame behind it and very few gay people at that time were openly out and proud right right you know, because it was a very different world then. Yeah. And I feel like also, like, another thing that, like, John Schlesinger was doing with, you know, some of these derogatory terms he's throwing around is he's showing what the world is like. Yeah. And, he's not hiding from it. And and if you catch and pick up on uh, Joe Buck's, um right, because they never really say, it's not like he comes out as gay in, in yeah. this film. It's not like he even... He doesn't even seem to wrestle with it all that much. It's more about what am I willing to do to make money to yeah, survive. It's, in it's New definitely York. a bigger thing in the book, from what I've read. Okay, um, but um, hearing him use those words, I think then says something about um, how he feel he might how he might feel about himself. Is, mm-hmm. is he does he hate himself? for some of these feelings that he might have or what he's willing to do for money or um mm-hmm. it 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 doesn't answer any of those questions it it simply poses those questions about his character yeah no i think that's that's all wonderfully said well thank you yeah As- <laughs> As a as a straight white man, I <laughs> I'm an authority on how everybody else feels. Yeah, you know what? I think uh, I think um, we've gotten really deep. Now I think we need to talk about the excessive use of the Harry Nielsen song. 
everybody's looking at i don't even remember the words as as many times as i heard them well we were, we were talking about how we think that was a um his, his inner monologue <laughs> <laughs> like it it's never playing in the film it's just always happening it's in, in his, his head. head yeah yeah yeah. it kind of made sense for his character as simple as he is and the way he always has that radio up mm-hmm. i i want to get into this like not get into because i don't have any conclusions yet yeah but i i wonder what the significance of that radio is of how the way he's always it's it's interesting because he's really he's really attached to it. Yeah. yeah. Um. I I almost wonder if it has something to do with like a sensory connection type of thing. Mm-hmm. Where, um, it, for me, what like I guess what made me th- kind of makes me think that and I don't even know, really know like how I would describe it. But when he was on his bus, uh, was on the bus going from Texas to New York, when he started seeing buildings, he like quickly turned on the radio and found a station, and you know, it was like, "Welcome to New York Radio" or some shit. He's like, "We're in New York." Like that, it's like wh- that's what he needed uh, as confirmation. And I imagine like you know, he grew up in a small town in Texas, didn't come from a lot of money. Um, issues with his grandmother and his, his own mother and i i don't imagine like they had a television really at all and i feel like the radio was just what he did to pass his time and it was like almost like it, to me it came off almost like a comforting thing like you know um music is the only thing that gets that, that can help like i wouldn't if, if i don't think it, it seemed like this didn't exist but like you know, things were kind of weird with his grandmother. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if after yeah. a situation of his grandmother, if he didn't go turn on the radio and just try to lose himself. Right. Like, you know, to well, me, I, it, only, it felt like kind of like a, like, a, like a stuffed animal or a security blanket. Yeah. They did have, um, I mean, the, the TV kind of was also in, interjected into the story, too, where grandma did send him out to watch TV when her boyfriend came over. Oh, you're right. Over. I forgot about that. And also the... The first time that he um, had sex in New York, he was they were rolling over the remote and the TV oh, was I for, changing I channels. I completely forgot about that. You're you're right. You're 100 percent right. I wonder if it's not this like that the media, both the screen and the radio, is kind of how he sees the world. It, it's like a a function of his naivety. Maybe uh, it kind of reminds me of, and we were just talking about this in the last episode in Requiem for a Dream. Where the mother character is just watching uh, these, like, hack salesmen, you know, uh, pitchmen on TV. Or mm-hmm. I, I forget if they're evangelists or p- either way. All right. We got a winner. Oh, we got a winner. Got a winner. She's a beautiful woman with a winning sense of humor and a magical smile. She's really going to win your heart. Straight from Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. Please give a juicy welcome to our very own Mrs. Sarah Goldfarb. Juice by Sarah. Juice by Sarah. Juice by Sarah. Oh, that's how she is experiencing the world, and that's how Joe Buck experiences the world, and that has informed his opinion of what New York is. So then, when he gets there, and it's something very different. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like that. That there's something there, like what he thought New York was going to be, as a result of how it's portrayed on radio and in TV versus yeah. what it actually was. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I'm just throwing stuff at the wall right now. <laughs> no, I, I like that. I, I, I like that. Um, I also like one similarity I noticed in how they cut the scene of of that TV cutting. And I really enjoyed what they did with the lines that they chose in each of those mm-hmm. little video yes. things. But it reminded me of the editing style when he was having the flashbacks to when him and his girlfriend were... I, it, it's implied that they were both raped. Um, yeah. But the way that they cut those memories together mm-hmm. and the way that they cut that... like. It seemed to one informed the other, um, which I I like. I feel like there's more there to dive into. Yeah, and um, definitely just because like his flashbacks seem to come strongest when he is um, making love. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, because like in the th- movie theater scene, that's when we get the most uh, information about his past. Right, um, and we start kind of putting together, you know. His in, his intrepidation, like it, how almost it feels like uh, he. I'm trying to think of like the best way to put it. Like he's <laughs> he's 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 with this, this this young man in this theater, and then he's remembering what could arguably consider is the worst thing that happened to him right. when he was raped. And but like, it was it was also like right after this mm-hmm. this really beautiful moment of of him and this woman that he is it's only presented as a beautiful caring like positive Mm -hmm. you're so wonderful you're the only one uh which then you come to be informed later that that line actually may have gotten him found guilty of of it yeah um which was interesting um well, but in the so, in the so book, he, I, I I did a little bit of digging, and it says in the book. So, Annie, his the the woman he's has a relationship with, um, she is. It, granted, I've not read the book. I'm just going off the off of the description. Yeah, the um, notes. Uh, uh, Joe Bob loses his virginity to Annie, and Annie, I believe, has. Um, some potential mental disorders because there's actually okay. a moment in the beginning of the film when she's when he's leaving town and it says crazy annie loves joe buck or something like that oh um, yeah yeah that's and right. then apparently she's she's fooling around with a couple different guys and they have a relationship in secret one of the guys and she says that he joe buck's the best she's ever had which kind of right. leads to his like oh i'm really good at this right and one right. of the people that messes around of annie finds out about it and that what puts a fall to, to it. Okay. Yes. Yes. And it also says in the book too that before Joe Buck leaves town, like he, this is not the first time that he's he's had experimentation with gay sex. Okay. Um, but he like it, it within the context of the film, there is an obvious juxtaposition that he has where this he has this positive moment with somebody that he cares about from this very traumatic moment that happens later that is not only a traumatic he is traumatized not only by what happens to him but what happens to this woman that he cares about um and and those two things together um seem you know the the storytelling certainly implies that the events of that night um 
are are a piece of what sends him on this journey that leads him to New York and, and yeah and I also feel you know he has those memories and I feel like that's also what leads to his aggression as well because he's got a lot of un unresolved issues and feelings about it so both times when money comes up with these male partners and it doesn't quite work out in his way he loses his shit in a way he didn't with the woman at the beginning of the film right because yeah. i feel like he it can be read that he resents this and he doesn't want to be doing this and is like well now i did this and now and there's no money what did i get out of it type of right. thing whereas right. you know like and then because the, the, the most aggression he's had has been towards men right Yep, absolutely. And I can't think of a single instance, and it may be in there, but I'm trying to think of an instance where he's aggressive towards a female, and I don't think he is. I don't think so. Um, it's it's fascinating. There's I think there's a lot more to unpack in this film, um, but from a first viewing, it's already quite quite narratively rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we did a pretty good job considering... <laughs> I think we you came in like not not knowing what all was going to be talked about, and then my rants got you fired up and <laughs> woo yeah. <laughs> so, is there um, anything else you wanted to talk about, Nick, before we wrap this up? I I don't think so. I did go on to afterwards. I I was kind of him hawing between a on my letterbox review of a four star or four and a half star, mm-hmm. and then based on our conversation, and I'm realizing that I think I. Enjoyed it a little bit more than you did. Um, I Which went, surprises me because I, I would have... I went four and a half. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like uh, in subsequent viewings, I'm going to... It's probably going to go up, definitely. Yeah. Because <laughs> even yeah, as we were talking, I was like, fuck, this was a really good movie. <laughs> I, I think that I, I respect and don't disagree with your comment about the pacing. I think it's... But I actually enjoyed the the unique pace oh i did too i i 100 did too actually it was more so like i wish we would have gotten a little bit more with joe and rizzo and less of like you know andy warhol parties and <laughs> which one thing i do have to agree with roger ebert he says in his review it's like he said in the 60s they did stuff like that all the time where they would have like an unnecessary party sequence and it was a big purpose just so that way the cinematographer and team could show off like their crazy editing and crazy camera skills and i was watching i was like He's not wrong. <laughs> He's not I, wrong. I really enjoyed watching stoned Joe Buck. <laughs> yes. Kind of like, oh boy, that was yeah. a funny cigarette. <laughs> yeah, that, that was so much fun for me. All right. Um, I don't think I've got anything else. I, I do have one more thing. What's, uh, what's that, Nick? If you don't like that, then I've got two words for you. Okay. What watch movies. Watch movies. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> Fuck it. We'll fix it in post. Let's just end the show. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers. Today's episode was edited by Nick Richards. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Byers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.